You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. James W.C. Pennington. Reverend Pennington was was born into slavery on Maryland's eastern shore in the year 1807. He was able to escape from slavery as a young man, and he writes about the ills of slavery and his harrowing escape from it and other aspects of his younger life in his 19, uh, not 19, his 1849 autobiography. Here's the title of Reverend Pennington's autobiography. The Fugitive Blacksmith, or Events in the History of James W.C. Pennington, Pastor of a Presbyterian Church, New York, formerly a slave in the state of Maryland, United States. How's that for a book title? I consider Reverend Pennington to be one of my black Presbyterian fathers. Not only was he a minister, but before and after he was licensed to preach, he taught in schools for black children in New Haven and Hartford, Connecticut. And here's why I bring up Reverend Pennington's story to you. He became the first African-American to take classes at Yale University, uh, to be exact, at Yale Divinity School. A few years ago, a classroom uh, at the Divinity School in in Yale was was named uh, in his honor. There's now a portrait of him in that classroom. And now, when I say that he attended Yale University and Divinity School, the word uh, attended is in quotation marks. See, he applied for admission, was, was not accepted into the school as a regular student. He was allowed to sit in and audit classes, but he was prohibited from asking any questions or speaking at all during lectures. He also wasn't permitted to to take books out of the library. And so he attended, but he was hindered along the way and prohibited from earning a degree. Now, why would he do that? Why would he subject himself to the indignity of that experience? There aren't many of his sermons that have been published, but one writer says of Reverend Pennington's sermons that he made few concessions to limited vocabularies or drowsy minds. I'm going to aspire to that, making few concessions to limited vocabularies or drowsy minds. Pennington, he writes in his autobiography of the painful process of mental and verbal emancipation. He says, it cost me two years hard labor after I fled to unshackle my mind. It It was three years before I had purged my mind of slavery's idioms. It was four years before I had thrown off the crouching aspect of slavery. And this isn't about just having proper diction. This is about the fact that Pennington was striving to raise the cultural level of his people. In other words, he endured the indignity of studying as an auditor, unable to speak or interact in class because the focal point of his study was not himself. 
His focal point was those whose lives he wanted to impact and improve. You could say that he was studying for the life of his world. You see, as we turn our attention to this discipline of, of studying the scriptures, studying the word of God, it's not about simply our personal walk or life with God as individuals. It certainly includes that, but if we think about studying the Bible like we think about studying in school to, to get good grades, we're missing a key and a fundamental aspect and perspective that runs throughout the Bible. And it's this, that the Lord always has his eyes on blessing his world for his glory and for our good. There is the goal of our study. The glory of God and the good of his world. What does it mean to be students of the Bible? I want to share three things with you from these 24 verses, three things with you from this passage. One, it's a way out. It's a way out. One, two, it's a way in. And three, it's a way forward. A way out, a way in, and a way forward. 119th Psalm is the longest chapter in the entire Bible. It is what's called an acrostic psalm. What that means is that the structure of the psalm, it follows the Hebrew alphabet. Each stanza of the poem has eight lines, and the first eight lines of each stanza begin with the first letter of that corresponding, a first letter of that corresponding word letter in the alphabet. And so the second eight standards, stanzas begin with the second letter in the alphabet, and the third eight stanzas with the third, and on and on and on and on for all 176 verses. And so our 24 verses takes us through the first three letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Now here's what I'm saying. It takes some creativity to compose a poem like this. When the psalmist poured all of his creative energies and genius into composing this acrostic masterpiece, what was animating him? What was motivating him? Why was he writing this psalm? It was the word of God. It was the word of God. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Russ started out our series for the life of the world with Psalm 1, uh, meditation for the life of the world. Do you remember how that psalm begins, how the first psalm begins indeed, how the whole book of Psalms begins? Psalm 1, blessed is the man who, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And then the psalmist says in verse 2 of that first psalm, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Well, the 119th Psalm is like an exponential expansion of Psalm 1 and verse 2. The blessed person's delight is in the word of God. Why is the blessed person's delight in the word of God? Well, in one reason is for it is because in God's word we find the way out. What do I mean? We find in the word of God the way out of our sin and shame. Over and over and over again, the psalmist speaks 
to the liberty that, that God's word has given him. He says in these first three verses, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. The, this blessing is liberty in, in keeping God's statutes and following God's commandments. The psalmist says in verse 6, I shall not be put to shame. How can a young person keep his way pure, he asks in verse 9. By guarding their way according to God's word, he says in verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. See, there isn't one of us in here who doesn't know what it's like to feel shame. We all know what it's like to feel an experience that feeling of distress and humiliation and pain because we've done wrong and thought wrong. We are conscious of the wrongdoing in ourselves, by ourselves, and in others. Well, what is the way out of that condemnation that comes with our shameful and sinful ways? It's the word of God. I'll tell you about a friend of mine from college some of y'all know my story. Y'all know that I was raised in a Christian home but rejected the faith uh, during my later teen, teen years. And when I got to college, I became what I call a radical black nationalist, uh, a power to the people, Afrocentric movement kind of guy. I was talking to Cyril about this last night, and I had a friend on campus named Brian Spivey. Brian and I, we would do... Uh, we would do book studies on campus centering on the Afrocentric worldview and black nationalist thought, and we would try to recruit others into our way of, of, of thinking. And so uh, Brian actually graduated uh, from school before I did. That's another story. I don't have time to tell you all that. But, but he graduated. And after Brian graduated, unbeknownst to me, Brian actually became a Christian. And... and one point in uh, my life, I was trying to sell life insurance. I won't tell you why I was trying to sell life insurance. But, you know, when you try to sell life insurance, at least back in those days, you got to call up everybody you know and try to get an appointment to go see them and sell them some insurance. So I took the train up from Brooklyn to the Bronx to meet Brian at his little basement level apartment that he was, he was staying in. And I, I sat and talked to Brian. I was trying to tell, sell him, tell him why he needed life insurance. And Brian is spending his whole time talking to me about Jesus. Literally for three hours. He's telling me his story about becoming a Christian. You know what he said to me? He said some of his fraternity brothers had said to him, you know, you, you were an English and literature major. You should just read the Bible for literature's sake because, you know, some people just do that. And Brian said, he said, okay. He said he started to read the Bible. And as he was reading the Bible, he said the Spirit of God convicted him of his sin. And he said, I got to go find me a church. The word of God brought him out, showed him his sin and shame, convicted him of his sin and shame, and said he's got to go find a remedy to his sin and shame. Indeed, I even said to him, here was my confession, I said, well, you know, I said, you know how you say something, and you, after you say it, you realize, like, 
that came out of my mouth and I can't take it back, right? I said to him, I said, you know why I don't read the Bible? I said, because I'm afraid I might find out it's true. This reality of God's word as a way out of sin and shame, what Brian did for me that day, he was giving me a living testimony of the truth that we heard in the scripture reading from Hebrews chapter 4, that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, that it pierces to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges, it discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And the pastor says in Hebrews 4, and no creature is hidden from his sight. We are all naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must all give account. Look at some of the descriptions in Psalm 119 in these verses of the person submitted to God's word in this passage. He's blameless, he says in verse 1. Those who do no wrong in verse 3, having an upright heart in verse 7, purity in verse 9. These descriptions, they serve as counters to the sin and shame that we so desperately need to be free of. The way out is the way of liberty and that freedom comes in and through God's commands. Let me say that again. The liberty, the freedom, the way out of sin and shame comes in through God's commands. In other words, freedom doesn't come from being released from God's commands. Freedom comes from submitting to God's commands. Derek Kidner, Kidner in his commentary on this passage says there are two elements of this freedom First, the breaking of sin's power or dominion as one's steps are steadied by the word of God. And secondly, the mind-stretching encounter with a greater wisdom and vision than one's own. He's right to say that in the word of God, we see a breaking of sin's dominion over us by the steadying of our steps to walk in his ways. But the mind-stretching encounter with the word of God also provides us with a greater wisdom and vision than our own because it's not only a way out of our sin and shame, it's a way in. It is a way into God's heart and his mind. Talking about studying the word of God for the life of the world, well, look at all of the words that the psalmist uses to describe the word of God. Verse 1, the law of the Lord. Verse 2, his testimonies. Verse 3, his ways. Verse 4, his precepts. Verse 5, his statutes. Verse 6, his commandments. Verse 7, his righteous rules. Verse 9, his word. Verse 11, his word. I'm pointing it out because in Hebrew, it's two different words in verse 9 and 11 that are translated as his word. Verse 15, his ways, which is again a different word in the Hebrew than in verse 3 when he said his ways. The the word of God is the way in to the mind and the heart of God. See, here's the deal, right? Hebrews 4, chapter 12, uh, chapter 4, verse 12 said that no creature is hidden from God's sight. We are all naked and exposed to the eyes of whom we must all give account. Well, here is the mind-blowing reality. God has exposed himself as well. 
We don't have to grope around in the dark wondering what God's heart and desires are. He has revealed himself to us in his word. You and I don't have to play guessing games when it comes to God and his will. There's a reason why the Bible is called special revelation. You and I are not going to get a grasp of God's law, his testimonies, his ways, his precepts, his statutes, his commandments, and righteous rules apart from God gifting us with special revelation from his own mouth. You and I are going to be in bad shape if what we attempt to learn about God simply comes from studying and observing other people. You and I are going to be in bad shape if we attempt to learn what it means uh, to know or see God from studying nature. Yes, the heavens do declare the glory of God, but we know that because Psalm 19 tells us that. We need wisdom from above, wisdom that doesn't simply come from creatures or creation, wisdom that comes from the creator himself. And the way into God's heart, it requires, listen, it requires a certain position. I come to God's word as a learner. That means I come to it in humility. I come to it expecting the spirit of God to instruct me. In other words, I don't stand over the word of God. The word of God stands over me. Do you hear how that positioning of himself under God's word comes out of the psalmist, please, in these verses, verse number five, oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes, he says. In verse seven, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. In verse 10, with my whole heart I seek you, let me not wander from your commandments. In verse 12, Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. Verse 16, oh, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things from your law. The psalmist says, Lord, I need you. Even when I come to your word, I need you to open my eyes so that I can see the wonder of it. We come as those needing instruction and the different words that the psalmist uh, uses to describe God's word, they're like fats, facets of a, of a diamond. The, the word of God as law it speaks to uh, the fact that we're called to obedience. The, the word of God as testimony speaks to God's faithfulness. The word of God as a precept speaks to the way he regulates our behavior. The word of God as a statute speaks to its it's permanent fixture. The, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever, Isaiah says. The word of God as commandment speaks to, to his right and authority to give orders. The word of God as righteous rules or judgments speaks to him as the all-wise judge in our dealings with him and with each other. When the psalmist simply calls God's word the word, we are being tuned into the fact that God himself is speaking. We are hearing his voice. Lastly, when we hear the psalmist refer 
to God's ways when he says, I will fix my eyes on your ways. He knows that the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works, and he wants God's ways to influence his ways. Is there any wonder then that when the Apostle Paul wants to leave a pastoral instruction for his young protege, protege Timothy, he says to him in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness so that God's messenger may be complete, fully equipped for every good work. Furthermore, listen, is it any wonder then that John says to us in his gospel that Jesus is the incarnate word? That the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, if you want to know the way to God's heart, you got to go through Jesus. What does obedience to God's law look like? Look at Jesus. How do we pursue obedience to God? Look to Jesus. Where do we see the ultimate testimony of God's faithfulness? Look at Jesus. How do we pursue faithfulness to God ourselves? Look to Jesus. On and on it goes. The precepts, the statutes, the commandments, the ways of God. You want to see it in action? Look at Jesus. Do you want to pursue it yourself? Look to Jesus. He is the, revel the ultimate revelation of God's heart to us. And he's the one through whom our hearts get intimately connected with God's heart to follow him in all of his ways. You see, this is the way forward. The study of God's word shows us the way out of sin and shame. The study of God's word shows us the way in to God's heart and his mind but the study of God's word also shows us the way forward to the love of our neighbor. Let me point out a couple of things as I wrap up here. When the psalmist says in verses 1 and 3, blessed are those whose way is blameless and blessed are those who also do no wrong, he's not simply talking about being blameless before God. He's talking about being blameless before others as well. Doing no wrong doesn't simply mean wronging God. It has a sense of wronging somebody else. Its focal point is how we live before others and engage others and treat others. We miss it if we think that this is just about my personal piety and keeping myself unstained from the world. All of these things that the psalmist is praying and declaring are related to the life of the world. They are related to living before other people. Walking in God's ways. Keeping God's precepts diligently. Fixing his eyes on God's commandments. Learning God's just judgments. Guarding his way according to God's word. Declaring the rules of God's mouth. Delighting in God's statutes. Refusing to forget God's word. These commitments are about how we live in the world before one another. Look, you can't walk in God's ways before anybody if you're not delving into God's word. You can't, you can't declare 
the truth of God's justice to anyone if you're not learning his righteous rules from his word. The Gospel of John, or not John, Luke rather, Gospel of Luke, chapter 2 and verses 41 and following, we get this account that Luke gives us of, of when Jesus was 12 years old. He and his family go up to Jerusalem, Luke says, for the feast of the Passover like they did every year, he says. And, and after the feast ended, right, you remember what happened? The, they begin the journey back, right? But 12-year-old Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, right? His parents thought that he was with their group, thought that he might be with uh, relatives and, and acquaintances. They go a whole day's journey, about 20 miles of travel with, without realizing that he wasn't with them. And then, right, they frantically return to Jerusalem looking for him, right? Luke says that after three days, they find him in the temple. After three days of going crazy, where is our 12-year-old son? They finally come to the temple and they find him there. And what is Jesus doing in the temple? Luke says he is sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And Luke says to us in verse 47 of chapter 2, And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Even his parents were astonished. It says when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, just like a mama, right? Well, some mamas might be a little harsher than this. But this is what his mama said, Son... Why have you treated us so? I might know some mamas, particularly one I'm related to by marriage, who wouldn't have been so gentle. Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And what does Jesus say? He says, why were you looking for me? Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Even at a young age, Jesus understood who he was. But listen, the picture of him sitting and listening to the teachers, learning, even as the son of God, how to apply the word of God for a life of obedience to God's ways. His declaration, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? It included his commitment to study and grow in the knowledge of God's will for the sake of God's world. He knew, he knew even at 12, the formative impact of God's word and its necessity for faithfulness. And faithfulness, right? Faithfulness for him was literally for the life of the world. Faithfulness for Jesus literally meant the cross. Faithfulness for Jesus meant obedience to his role as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Listen, how does Jesus reply in, in Luke chapter 3 when the devil tempts him in the wilderness? Jesus responds to each of the temptations with the words, It is written. Where does he turn? 
he turns to the word of God even when the devil tries to twist the word and quote from Psalm 90 and Luke 3 and says, listen, jump off this cliff because it's written, you know, he won't let you dash your foot against a stone. He'll, he'll hold, it, hold you up with his angels. And Jesus says, listen, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In other words, Jesus even knew how to identify the twisting of scripture for unclean purposes. Listen, faithfulness to the study of God's word and the following of God's ways is what equipped our Savior for that night in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed to his Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me, nevertheless not my will, but yours be done. How do you think he became equipped to be able to say at the moment of every trial when it's most intense, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done? Because it wasn't magic. He understood God's will from God's word. Listen, studying, studying for the life of the world does not simply mean it's not about our being able to just go around quoting Bible verses to people all the time. It's about our learning and our growing in our ability to apply God's word to all aspects of life. Jesus' firm grasp of the word of God was for the life of the world. And listen, family, make no mistake about it. Through faith in him, we are called to that very same thing. The study of God's word for the life of God's word, a deepening growth in, our, in, the, in the study of his word for the blessing, the good, the love, the life of God's word. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.